A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome back to The Chemical Show. Today, I am speaking with Chad Hall, who is the Vice President of Energy at Integrity Biochem, where he drives strategy, growth, and innovation for the oil and gas division. Chad has 20 plus years in the industry in strategy, marketing, operations, business development, and technical analysis, and has worked with companies including Schlumberger, MI Sueco, Smith International, and Baker Hughes. He earned his Bachelor's of Business Administration at Texas State University and is a certified Mission Performance Level 5 coach, which I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that. Chad, welcome to The Chemical Show. Victoria, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to getting together and really excited to dive into some of these questions. I am super excited to have you here. Let's start with this one. What is your origin story? What got you interested in energy and chemicals and ultimately got you to Integrity Biochem? Absolutely. So my origin story, just, just kind of high level is I, I, I did not intend to get into chemicals or oil and gas. You know, when I was going to uh, university in San Marcos, I actually had an alumni advisor of the fraternity I was in who was a Raymond James financial services. So I was actually kind of recruited to do that. I was going to be a stockbroker. I got there, was trying to pass the series seven and, and realized that that was not for me. So it's, you know, kudos to those people that that's for, but it wasn't me. And so I'm third generation oil field. My, my grandfather was worked for El Paso. It was bought by, I think Huntsman's technically the, the company that owns that now. And yeah. they were bought several times. So he did refining of chemicals out in West Texas. And then my father worked for Baker Hughes and did some of his own things later. So kind of knew that. And sometimes it's who you know, who opened the door for you. And, and so there were some doors that were open for at least interviews. And uh, I landed with uh, Baker Hughes and, and moved to Weatherford, Oklahoma and, and loved it, worked in the field and, you know, tr very traditional oil and gas career, you know, starting in the field and then doing various roles. I'm 21 years into it now. All I've, all I've ever done is oil and gas. I love it. I, I did work for a, a handful of companies. The longest that the longest company I stayed at and where I got a lot of my training was, was Smith International, who Slumberger acquired. And so at that point, most of my career had been downhole tools. So drill bits, MWDs, motors, more on the downhole side and on the tool side. And, and at Slumberger, you know, they'll they'll take you and they'll put you in an HR role or they'll put you in a, a safety role, they'll put you uh, overseeing a division you, you you've never done anything. And so especially at the, the the executive leadership type spots. And so I had actually got an opportunity to go work for MI SWATCO and I was on the solids control division. So we didn't have a lot of interaction with chemicals, but we would go into um, commercial discussions with operators uh, on the fluid side. So I did kind of get, start to get a little taste of chemicals and, and that was probably my first taste of chemicals. But then as things tra uh, transitioned, my career had, had gotten to where it had gotten and, and a, a small little chemical company 
kept kept calling and I had told him no. And eventually I did decide to go to work for them. And so they were a startup and that's where I really started learning a lot about chemicals, specifically around surfactants and getting more oil out of the ground and really just fell in love with that. I got to spend a lot of time because of that role with Dr. Schechter at Texas A&M, very smart professor, give him a lot of credit for, for, for my learning there. And, you know, not all startups make it, make it through COVID. So transition to Integrity Biochem, it really was a nice match because they do the same thing. So three years ago, I started with Integrity Biochem and we haven't looked back. I, I love it. I'm still doing, you know, surfactants along with a lot of other chemistries. Yeah, that's really interesting from equipment to chemicals. And, and the reality is, as you know, we need it. We need them everywhere. So tell us a little bit about Integrity Biochem. I know you know one of your colleagues has been on previously, but tell us what you see at, at, at IBC and what it's all about. Yeah. So Integrity Biochem, we just were talking about this. We had some, come, we're coming off the heels of some, some strategy meetings heading into, you know, any Q3, heading into Q4, kind of looking at, at what 2024 might be. And so we, we took some time to kind of acknowledge that we're, we're six years old and we're going into year seven as a company. So that's, that's a big deal. That's, that's uh, impressive actually. Yeah. Yeah. So you make it, so, making it past the five-year mark is huge success for a company. Absolutely. And, you know, we, 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 they started, you know, before my time with them, they started with a, a smaller footprint and then grew and grew. We've recently acquired the 60 acres adjacent to our facility. So we're 75 acres just south, uh, southwest of uh, Fort Worth and Crescent and um, just growing like crazy. So in, integrity, really, if you go back and you start with what it was, and I do believe you've, you've had some people on here uh, from Integrity Biochem before that, that have, have explained some of this, but we we started by acquiring a technology from the pharmaceutical space. So it's a it's it's broadly classified as a, a polysaccharide biopolymer, and that is the foundation of our molecule and what we do. And so that started us, and we really the company really was founded and rooted in oil and gas, our energy division. And so that's what started. Our CTO is a brilliant geologist, and so he brings a chemistry perspective as a geochemist to the geology. And it's really interesting to not just understand the chemical side. But when you're interacting with rocks down hole that are not homogeneous and they change constantly, you bring a different perspective than just chemicals. So it's combining chemicals and rocks. I think it gives us a really unique position uh, for this space. But then fast forward to where we are today, we've launched our IMI division, Integrity Mining Industrial. So it's looking after the, the mining industries, water treatment, paints and coatings, and really taking the technology and functionalizing it, modifying it. And, and creating new chemistry for those spaces. Um, and then you also look at what some, some of the talks that have done here is our integrity specialty chemicals uh, division. And that's just really exciting. You know, we, we, we made an entire new molecule. We took our base biopolymer and we're able to create an entirely new molecule, which is a surfactant. And we can make HLB ranges, I believe from like seven to 19. It gives us a whole new, a whole new side of we we actually use those surfactants in our oil and gas division, but this takes us into personal care. It takes us into HINI. It takes us into all these other spaces where you know we can replace synthetic surfactants with you know greater performing or equal performing surfactants. So, you know, rooted and founded in oil and gas, but growing like crazy into all these other industries. Yeah. And, you know, with growth with growth comes a lot of challenges, but also a lot of excitement. 
Yeah, that's really awesome. And in fact, yeah. I will. So, you know, Michael Seaver was on the, the podcast previously. So we'll have his episodes linked so that people can find that and listen in because we did have a lot of great conversation about eat and surf and, and the other molecules that you guys have developed and really how you are taking um, bio-based products and biosurfactants to market from a personal care and, and other market perspective. Then of course, where you are in energy. So that's pretty cool. So let's talk a little bit about the markets, because what I think is, it's interesting. So the chemical industry has been, you know, flat or down or it's something this year. Nobody's really happy with where they are. And yet we know that oil prices are up and it seems like oil and gas markets are strong. What are you guys saying generally in terms of business and markets here in 2023 going into 24? You know, it's an interesting market. I think if anyone tells you they've got it, they've figured out, I would say they were fibbing. So it's been a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde market, right? You've got this, I think commodities maybe fell below $90 today, but they were up over $90 last week, uh, WTI anyway, so Brent yeah. above that. You've got rig count going down. You've got frac crews that, that are now published, uh, show to be going down. I think that, that metric itself... I think there are idle frack crews out there. So I think that that market's even less than maybe it suggests it is. And so I think it, it's it's been a challenge. I think a lot of people thought that Q3 going into Q4, the frack fleet count and rig counts would be up, right? Mm. At the beginning of the year, at this time last year, kind of looking at where we thought things were going, I think that's where most people reading the articles, yeah. talking to people, I think that's where everyone kind of thought the market would go. Yeah. I think people really thought that that will shift to 2024. And so there may be specifically for the energy side of our, I, I think there's potential for, you know, hundred dollar oil. There's a lot of stuff out there that suggests that that might be the case. I'm by no means an expert. So I don't know that anyone is anymore. It changes so much, but I think the unique thing about a company who's, who's, you know, six years old going on seven years now is that there's room for growth because we continue to diversify and create new products. Mm -hmm. So even though one side of your industry, there may be some challenges. If, if you have less frack crews, then that's that's not a performance or a price issue. That's mm. just you have a demand. Market it's just it. demand. Yeah, just demand, and that's and that's and that is just it. Just is what it is. So what's cool is that even within the energy space, we're looking at diversifying, right? I mean, we're heavily we're heavily uh, involved in the frat market, and and that's where we kind of started. But we're introducing new chemicals to the completion drill out space. We're looking at uh, products that go into the drilling space. We're looking at treating profit at the actual mines, which is kind of a mining industry, but it's kind of oil and gas. And so you have you have a lot of these situations where you can actually still grow, even though maybe some of your core business has some adversity. And that's, I think, unique. And then you factor in not only in oil and gas, but you factor in IMI or you factor in specialty chemicals and all these growth in these other divisions. Even if the market in general is flat to slightly down, if you're starting new in something, you have nowhere to go but up. So you yeah. can still find growth within some of this. And I think that's a unique position where, you know, where we're at. So Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And of course, a lot of that ties then to, you know, your ability to engage your customers and really create the the value propositions and what have you that they need. Because, you know, as as we say customers always have a choice, right? And I think across the industry, uh, certainly when we think about oil and gas and oil field chemicals, a lot of times people say, well, it's all about the relationship. And if it was only about the relationship, well, then 
customers would migrate every time somebody shifted. And that's that's not the case, right? That business would be following people from company to company. But we know that's not the whole story. So I guess to me, the question I have for you, and you look at your markets, looking at energy and oil field chemicals, what's critical to your customers? How are they making decisions and driving business decisions and business value? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think I can relate to that question pretty much since I started. And I think it's changed a bit too. I, I think that you do see situations where you have an individual that has business with a certain customer and maybe they change jerseys to go to work for, for another team and then they take that business with them. That that does happen, right? Yeah. Um, I think those people are unique and I think personality-wise, they're just just really meant for the role that they're in commercially leading their their companies. And so I think those are few and far between. You do you do see that from time to time. But at the end of the day, I think there's some really key metrics. There's a difference between winning business and keeping business, right? So mm-hmm. I think you have to, at the end of the day, there is a service component to some degree in oil and gas that is critical, right? I mean, you've got you've got whether it's most operations are 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 365, 24-7, right? If somebody needs yeah. something at 3 a.m., they need something at 3 a.m. and there's not it's not negotiable. And so I think that's very unique to our space. I'm sure there's some other industries that I don't know about that are similar, but to me, it, it, it is unique in that. And so service is critical. And so doing what you say is important because all it takes is one mess up and it doesn't matter how strong your relationship is with the customer, you're out. Yeah. So you've got to have a backbone and a foundational customer service group and operations group that can can go out and actually do what you said you're going to do because the over-promising, under-delivering, it catches up with you quick. And so I've mm-hmm. always said it's it's one thing to win business, but you, you've got to keep that business, right? And so yeah. I think that that's unique. And, and another thing that I think on that, Victoria, is what are you selling, right? Are we are we talking about something that, and specific to chemicals, is it, is it a commodity or is it something that's differentiated, patented, innovative? Because they're really different, right? I think you have companies and you need you need both i'm not saying one is better than the other right like you right. need both but let's say that you did work for a company that sells commodities price is going to be very important there right and price is a lot of times going to win service is going to be you know 1a 1b and so that's that's there so i think if you're doing that and you have someone that has great relationships that has pricing that wins business and you you can back it up with service that's really hard to beat in that space if you if you switch over to the other situation I described, where maybe you're selling a patented product that only that company has, or you know maybe it's not patented because you're keeping some proprietary things about it, but it's very differentiated. It does something that other chemicals can't do, or it does them in a different way. That's very unique then, and that that you've got to have. It's not just the relationship. You've got to be able to go in and build that value prop out and describe why your product presents a solution to their problem. Mm. Because in this environment that we're in, it's not only this lower rig count, lower frack count, you have seen, and you've seen it for several years now since COVID, where people are eliminating chemicals from the frack program. They're taking chemicals off. They're using the bare bones to get a well done. And arguably in some cases, they're using less than they should be. And it's scary where what some yeah. of the world might look why, like. So why are, they, why are they doing that? What do you guys see that, that prompts that to happen? I, I think it's just what we've been in this 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 continuous. You know, you you had several years ago where 
operators were forced to work within cash flow, right? We, that's been written about and talked about. And it was a, just a pivotal movement for the industry in general. Yeah. And with that came a lot of looking at what, what do we actually need? You have some situations where people maybe stopped using certain chemicals and their wells didn't get worse. And so mm-hmm. why would they go back to those? And so right. there was maybe some stuff out there that was over-promised and under-delivered like we just talked about. So you have situations like that where you've really got to dig in and, and figure that out. So being able to go in and 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 build that value prop out and and really explain to the customer what the chemical does differently and why they should maybe spend extra money on something they're not yeah. currently pumping is going to take where you said that it's not just the whole story of the person that goes from one company to the next. Yeah. They got to have that skill set, right? And, and the product's got to do what you said it's got to do, right? So that I think are some of the dynamics and you just get into all these sub layers and of how that works. So at the end of the day, you do need people out there commercially that have strong relationships. But even then, if you look at those strong relationships, they usually have some really key associated items with them, right? Trust. Trust is almost always there. The reason they have such a wrong, strong relationship is maybe that they've gained that customer's trust. A lot of times, you know, customers, you know, maybe they, they, know, they know your kids, they know your wife, they know your spouse, your husband. You, you get to where they really trust you. And I think yeah. that goes a long ways, right? As opposed to maybe they don't have a relationship with someone. It's because that trust hasn't been built. I think that's a, that has a lot to do with it. And sometimes trust just comes with time. Right. Hmm. And then again, it comes with delivering what you said you were going to do and not over promising. So it's really, you see these relationships, they're usually been built over years and years and years and years. Yeah. So that's interesting. So, and obviously IBC is a relatively new company. I know when I've talked with some other leaders recently, you know, one of the the things I've heard is that we're we're frustrated because you talk about keeping customer relationships. So, you know, there's a situation where, especially given the supply chain challenges we've had over a couple of years, you know, they go to bat, they, they do business with a company, they pull through in, in a very unique situation and are able to fulfill their requirements in a way that their regular supplier wasn't able to do. And then they may or may not keep that customer. And in fact, they fuss about it when they don't, they're not able to keep the customer, right? So they don't, the question is, I don't understand. I pulled through in a really tight situation for this customer, customer X. And yet the moment we're back to quote unquote business as usual, we don't have business anymore. And and so I guess my question to you, and, and part of that would say, you would say, well, they're going back to the customer or their supplier that they've been with for the last 20 years doesn't necessarily feel really good. And also when you look at a company such as IBC, that's a younger company and it could be any company, how do you break that? How do you create that stickiness so that you're not just winning business, but you're keeping that business, particularly when opportunities arise and you want to turn that unique opportunity into long-term business? I love that word stickiness. That's a great word. That's that's something we use at, at IBC quite a bit. So that aside, I think I think you really dive into something that that maybe there's not just a one word answer, right? I think there's probably layers to that. It's complicated. You 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 really you really have to kind of dive into that, right? Because what you also say is okay, we're back to usual. 
So maybe we're back to, what does that mean? Is usual because oil price is back to where it, it was before? Is usual back to, you know, okay, we've, we've got our, you know, P&L back to where it was and, yeah. and our EBITDA is, is now where it was before. Something well, like that. Or, or just your first supplier is back, back in your business, able to supply whatever their normal products are. Great point. I need to think about it from the, that side over there, we're, you know, downstream yeah. from creating. Absolutely. Because I think what you see a lot is, and it's specifically, I'm, I'm talking about the, the oil and gas side, right? This consolidation is real. Like you are seeing it, you're seeing companies get consolidated. And so that that is happening. There's less and less mm. operators out there. In addition to that, because of COVID and even before COVID, we, you know, we had these kind of smaller downturns all mixed in and around. And, and you, a lot of people have left the industry. So maybe what you had before the people who, even though you, you're saying you're back to usual, so usual, when you look in the mirror, it feels usual, but maybe yeah. that person that you engaged with that understood why you were the best choice is no longer there. So it's almost mm. like starting over again. Um, mm. How I would answer your other question there about IBC. Yes, IBC is six years old going in year seven, but if you look at our, our C team, massive relationships within industry, right? That goes back to the days where they were Magnavlan and bought by Univar. You know, you talked about Michael Suber, who, who you said you'd shared some of those um, podcasts in the links. Yeah. He comes from that world where he knows people. So sometimes that trust came with the people that are that are building mm -hmm. IBC because they brought those relationships with them. You know, 21 years, even though some of my time was started in the drilling, there's people that I sell to now that maybe when I met them or knew them, they were in the drilling space, but they're also now on the completion space and maybe they're buyers yeah. of chemicals. So there's so many changes on both sides. I think it's a little bit tricky as to say, you know, why don't we have this business? And I think you really have to dig down and go, okay, you know, looking in the mirror, it feels usual with what has changed on the other side. And there's been a lot, right. Including how the decisions are made on, on what they buy, um, mm. you know, procurement, you know, back when I started and, and maybe it was specific to some of the tools I was selling, wasn't involved as much in oil and gas as it was other industries. So now you see a lot of procurement driven decisions and departments that didn't used to exist that are massive in some of these companies. So the whole entire buying process has even changed for some company. That's not a silver bullet across the entire yeah. spectrum, but, but it, but it really, the way in which you engage and even sell has changed with customers, you know, B, X, and Q, you know, yeah. so that's, that's, yeah. that's real. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. The perspective of in oil and gas, the drive towards more corporate procurement driven processes versus the end user, right. Mm -hmm. at, at the wellhead and, and what have you, um, because I actually usually advise, you know, when I'm talking to people about, you know, well, you got to get away from procurement, not that you don't, want to do business with procurement. Um, but you find out what's really happening when you're talking to the formulators, when you're talking to people at the manufacturing side, at the wellhead, at the use interface, um, about where that value really resides um, and where the differentiators are. Um, and so it's it's an interesting, I think, tug of war um, between corporate control and procurement control. And they add a lot of value there to figuring out where the use value is for your business, your products, your services, and just how you do business. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Absolutely. Because if you think about it from the uniqueness, if, it, if, if 
the, to those two buckets that we kind of separated earlier of a commodity type chemical company versus maybe something that's doing something innovative with polysaccharide biopolymers like IBC, yeah. very different. Yeah. Dedephosphonate's dedephosphonate. It's a great scale inhibitor, it, but it's dedephosphonate, right? So yeah. polysaccharide biopolymers, it's, it's our molecule. It's ours. We're the only one doing it, right? So in a procurement Excel spreadsheet, RFQ for the next two years of business, how a dollar amount in a box is not ever going to be a good thing for an innovative polysaccharide biopolymer that does something very unique mm -hmm. and different. Now, I'm not saying that that should be compared to dutophosphonase. That was a terrible example. But to, to the point of, of comparing a commodity versus maybe what ours does, tricky. So you have to, you, you know, in, in the situation with IBC, you've got to be able to have conversations with procurement and say, you know, how can we fairly compare our product if it does something that these commodities you're comparing it to do not? And yeah. so that's critical, well, right? It, right. It, and it, I, and it, I think that's the value conversation, right? Because it's not just about price and cost. It's about value and what the return on the investment is. And so I think figuring out how to uncover that value is, is the salesperson's, the marketer, you know, the relationship manager's job is figuring out how to, apply value and not just cost. hundred percent, a hundred percent and multiple levels of engagement within the organization, right. To where you can pull everyone together and, and really drive exactly what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So sustainability and ESG, a clear drivers across the chemical and energy industry today. And, and you know, everybody seems to have a sustainability narrative. And really, you know, it, and certainly when you look at some of the products in the markets that IBC sells into. So when you think about personal care, huge driver around natural products, sustainable, et cetera, is the same true in oil and gas? How how are you seeing that? How important is maybe having a sustainability plan and just your sustainability profile to oil and gas customers? It's a, that's a phenomenal question. So, you know, you, you nailed it in personal care. It's the starting point, right? Yeah. Sustainable solutions, green solutions. It, it, it's, it's really where it starts. It's what people are looking for at the conferences. It's what people are talking to um, household cleaners, even the HI and I, like it's, it's fundamental and, and where those industries are in oil and gas at the end of the day today, my opinion is that it is important, but not, it's not on the same level as some of these other industries right now, broadly speaking across, you know, if you were to average right. it out, there are certainly those that are very interested in it and very focused on it. But at the end of the day, right now, if your, your green solution greens, so, you know, quote unquote, is yeah. not on par with the synthetic version that does the same thing. It's about performance at the end of the day. The mm. decision still goes to that. That said, I have seen, and it's very interesting, and I can talk about you know IBC and sustainability separately, but specific to oil and gas, what's been really cool, especially with a company that 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 makes molecules from from makes biochemistry. Uh, you have a situation where you've seen with some of the bigger operators and the bigger service companies that the word sustainability or the word green has started to enter conversations more than in the past. And I'd say the coolest thing that probably gives me an indication that, that we're going more that way 
is even in some larger RFPs, you've actually seen sustainability as a metric and, and, and actually asked for. So I think you've got situations where possibly investors are kind of driving that, demanding it, and companies that are publicly traded, private companies, maybe not as much, and maybe that's kind of the difference, but you definitely see it going more and more that way. And what's cool is, is what we've proven at IBC is that you can you can make sustainable solutions that can outperform synthetic ones, right? And I think right. that will give people more incentives, like, okay, this can be done in oil and gas, of course, I want the greener option. Of course, I want the more sustainable option, right? Potentially, maybe what was the limiting factor before is those solutions didn't exist, right? And we're here to mm. kind of show that we've done that. So yeah, yeah, that's cool. And I think I do think that it's it's a growing area, right? And I think a lot of companies, in fact, you know, the Wall Street Journal just this week had an article about how some companies, particularly some of the energy companies are backing off of some of their net zero and sustainability targets, partially because it's really hard to figure out how to achieve these really ambitious goals, right? Because solutions aren't necessarily in place, but also because they're wrestling with the the financial versus other benefits that go into it. And so I think, you know, as you guys come in and being able, as you say, to offer some green solutions, it's, it goes a long way towards helping to drive this. Absolutely. There's a couple of things there that come to mind, Victoria. I think we talked about this a lot at our, our, our meeting that I just alluded to that we, we came out of earlier in this week. And you know, you have these targets. I'm not familiar with the article you just mentioned, but that's really interesting and timely. I'd, I'd like to check that out. Yeah, I'll uh, send it to you. In fact, okay. and I can link it as well to the there, there podcast. We so there we go. People can find Perfect. it. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. But I think we've got this situation where you, whether that goal is 2030 or 2050, or like you said, maybe people even pushing it out further. I think where we want to be as a company is like, what are you waiting for? Let's do it in 2023. Let's do it in 2024. Like, let us work with you. If it, it, we've got solutions that can help you get there now. Yeah. We've proven that we can beat synthetic alternatives. So it's like, it's almost like when you see something and I don't want to offend anyone, but if you see this goal of like 2050, it's like, gosh, I'll be retired by then. I'm in my forties now. So, you know, I, I won't even be, a, that seems like so far, like right. why, why, why are we waiting that long? If it's important to you, we'll do it now. And I think that's, that's kind of critical. And, you know, when we trademarked our new name for, for IDC and kind of our trademark, we put it on our website, we spent a lot of time kind of walking through that sustainable science for the whole world. That, that means something at Integrity Biochem. Mm. I think it's very powerful when you think about it is that, that, and we're just barely getting started of all the cool stuff that we're going to work on. And, and even if not us, like I'd point you to some other people that are in the space that are phenomenal, right? We 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 have specific products that we sell here and there. We don't sell all the solutions that'll be needed to go completely green. There are other people out there that are making phenomenal chemicals as well. So I'd, you know, I'd raise them up and on a platform to say, you know, take a look at 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 these guys and these girls because that's yeah. powerful. I just it's interesting to hear you say we're going the other way because I think. The, the, there's no really reason why to wait. And, and we, we almost want to come out a little confident and say, kind of double down and be like, let's go. It's, it's yeah. time. 
Okay. I, I'm with you on it. Let's go. The question I think that comes with that though is scale, right? So I think one of the challenges that comes with that and the need to accelerate is scale, right? So IBC is still a pretty small company. And in fact, most of the companies that are developing green and bio-based molecules, you inherently start small because you have to start somewhere and you, you start small. I guess the question I have is, what about scalability? How are you able to scale and support? You know, as you say, we're in 2023. You want, let's go, let's buy those solutions today and tomorrow and accelerate it, not make it a 2050 goal, but make it a 2030 goal. How do you scale to get there? We love that question because we have a great answer for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a great question. You, you teed that one up for me nicely. Thank you, Victoria. So I think you're right. When you look at, let's talk surfactant specifically, right? Regardless of the industry, you know, you have have the ram nose, you've got the Sephora lipids, you've got a lot of these surfactants out there that are from the firm, fermented variety, right? Mm -hmm. Capex, um, repeatability, potential issues, things like that. There's some great companies out there, and I think some strides will be made along the way to where those those can scale. What we've done. And what's unique to us is that there is no fermentation with how we make our surfactants, right? Hmm. And so from a scale perspective, we're already there to where we can take on, like you couldn't throw enough out of this to where we couldn't handle it based on our footprint of where we're at, where we're going and how fast we can build because it's not the same capex of fermentation and, and whatnot. Can't really talk about the specifics much more than than how we do it, right? Uh, but can say, you know, if, if that's something that somebody wanted to talk about, I think more the reason why we're saying, why wait till 2030? Let's go now. Mm. We don't have a scalability issue. And because we're not fermenting, there's not a repeatability issue that you see with some of the some of the products from the fermented variety. So I think it really just plays to what we're trying to do and maybe why we want to be a little extra confident of let's let's go now. And yeah. and here's the other thing, Victoria, I think we don't have to just go all the way on sustainability, right? You know, some of the surfactants we're selling, they're phenomenal co-surfactants. So maybe it's not that you just replace the synthetic completely. Maybe it's that you combine our surfactant with yours and you take, take a percentage of synthetic chemistry that you're currently using out. And so it doesn't have to just necessarily be that you're just switching overnight. And in fact, you see that a lot of customers that we're talking to, that's what they're doing. And so yeah. it, it doesn't have to just be a hundred percent, right? But let's start now with baby steps. Yeah. Yeah. And and eventually, as you say, it, it ultimately will take us to where we're trying to go as an industry. We see this across a variety of product areas and formulations, right? So surfactants going into home care, it's not all going to be green. Some of it's going to be a component of green and a component, not 100%. plastics. A portion of plastics are circular or bio-based and then the rest are conventional. So I think we, we see this, we definitely see this happening across a variety of industries and products is that it's, you start where you start and then you keep growing. I like that. Yeah. Like so let's talk a little bit about leadership and, and I'm going to turn this a little bit more personally over to you. So you are a certified mission performance level five coach. I had to look up what that was, but I'm going to let you explain it. What yeah, does this mean? Uh, and, <laughs> and why did you go down this path to get certified as a coach? Yeah, that's really, that. I, I think it's really cool. It's something that I'm passionate about. 
it probably comes from playing sports growing up and having a lot of cool coaches in my life. I think to some degree the, uh, you know, a parental figure or, you know, a grandparent can be viewed kind of in the coaching mentoring range. And I just always sort of gravitated to strong people in my life that are, that are like that. And so I think the more you look at, at coaching in general, it's very different fundamentally than being a manager. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think you could look at what a manager does and what a coach does and they both give the same outcome, but they're very different because I view a manager as almost like telling and instructing and, and there may be times for that, but a coaching is more talking someone through and, 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 and helping them get their own goals achieved. Right. Right. So that, that's sort of what, why it's interesting to me as, as to specific mission performance level five, it's a company that I was introduced to when I was at Slumberjay. And really, really cool company. Check them out if, if, if you've never heard of them. They've got a lot of employees on their team that have, you know, been part of SEAL teams, British Special Ops. They've got like actors that mm. were so, so like, they're all over the map in terms of unique experiences that they kind of bring to the table. And they do all kinds of different uh, coaching, leadership, trainings, public speaking, things, things like that. And they kind of take you through stories and do, but one of the classes that they have is a coaching class. And I took the, the, First class, by far the best class I've ever taken. Absolutely hmm. loved it. Again, I think it goes back to some of the personal things that I that I like, but but loved it. I thought that I wished I would have had something like that when I started, because hmm. this was probably 10, 12 years into my career when I was exposed to this. But so what they offered is a, a certification program and what they attribute a level five uh, that based on the curriculum that they teach and what it takes to get there, they basically associate a level five uh, accreditation as like an associate's degree. So, wow. which is pretty cool. So that's a lot um, of work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of work. And it, you know, a lot of what you do is, you know, you take the classes, but then you actually have people that you do sessions with. And a lot of it's, you're actually giving people to mentor and coach. So I think, I think it's a really cool, really cool that's way very cool. of interacting with employees. No, I was going to ask. So this is where I was, my, my next part of this is I, I find it rare that business and commercial leaders have one, either the tendency towards coaching or two, really the training and the focus on coaching. Because as you say, I think being a manager is different than being a coach and they play different roles. And I, I personally actually do a lot of executive coaching and see the benefit and value obviously along the way with that. But I guess my question is, how do you, how are you able to leverage that? Are you are you able to leverage that at IBC, and how does that change who you are as a leader? Yeah, so I think you know ultimately maybe the best person to answer that question would be you know some of the people that I've had a chance to coach, and they tell you whether I was actually worth worth a darn or not. But all kidding aside, I think. Um, Coaching really all that coaching needs is is one person that's interested, right? You don't have to have a team of a hundred, right? It doesn't matter the size of your company. If you have one direct report, you're a coach, whether you know it or not. Your title may say manager, but at the end of yeah. the day, you're a coach. And I and I just fundamentally pour into this whole thought differently. I think I always thought like, what if every title in the world for every industry, for every, for every job out there, what if the word manager was replaced with the word coach? And what would the world look like? That maybe sounds kind of silly or dumb, but in my mind, I think that's pretty powerful, right? Because 
even though my natural and, and, and you, you learn this, right. It doesn't mean that you're perfect every time you coach your natural indication, especially, you know, type a driven leaders, right. And you're, you're in a, doing executive coaching. You probably see it all the time. It's like their natural inclination is to want to tell or go or do this. Right. So I think, you know, it, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily natural. Right. But I think just being kind of cognizant that, that maybe this is a better way to get the end result that you want your team to get to. And then at the end of the day, I think you do get a certain age and you, your view on the world changes. And at the end of the day, like seeing one of your team members smile or win or get a mm -hmm. win, it's cooler than you getting the win yourself. You just, it's, it's a lot. What's really cool about coaching is it's a lot less about you and it's just about the people that you're around. Right. So I think it's really powerful. I'm not going to say that I'm great at it all the time. But I think it's something that I strive to try to kind of be better at. And that's something that, you know, is pretty cool. Yeah. And ultimately helping the people around you get more for themselves, achieve more, build those skills and that confidence. Yeah. 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 That's a, uh, that's a hundred percent what it is. And then you, you create an environment where they feel like they can call you and, you know, be very open with you as to how do I, how do I achieve this goal that I want? And, and, and having those conversations to where you, you can sit down, you, you've got to still have goals, right? Mm -hmm. It just, they've got to be, they've got to be mutual. They've got to be, you know, geared around where the company is trying to go, but then specific because we're all different. I mean, God made us all different. We're all unique in different ways and how someone does it might be different than how the other one does it. And that's okay. At the end of the day, how do we get the result? So that's, that's really cool. interesting. And that's and really very fun cool stuff to dive into. Yeah. What's so I'm going to throw in a, a different question here now. And in fact, I don't normally ask this question. So this may be one of my, my new questions that's going to be coming along on the podcast pretty regularly. Um, what's one thing you wish you knew before you started your career? Oh man, maybe, you know, I think maybe again, it's probably, you know, this is probably very related to just personalities, right? They're all, like we just mentioned, they're all unique and different. So I think you know, maybe where for me personally is that like when things don't seem right or they didn't go the way that it's not the end of the world. And, and I think, you know, it's probably not just something that I should have told myself or wished I would have knew when I started. It's something I'm still trying to learn literally yeah. today. And that, you know, trying to be perfect or send an email at 2 a.m. probably doesn't solve a whole lot. And I think you know, you see that a lot in leadership positions where they're very driven and, and very, at, at the end of the day, like whether you lose your job during COVID or whether you have a boss that that is challenging or whether, you know, you've got stuff, you know, a lot of people have got personal stuff going on in their life or loss of a loved one. Like there's a lot that you go through, right? And I think just knowing that it's going to be okay tomorrow and that, to not beat yourself up so bad if you have that kind of perfectionist gene in you and, you know, speaking, not just to myself, but to what I see in, in some others, right. When you do coach and mentor a lot of people, or if you have kids, you, you, you see it across the, across the spectrum and it's the same, whether it's being a father or being a, a manager or someone. So I think it's a long answer to your question, but I think just, just being able to tell yourself that like, it's, it's going to be okay. And things, you know, it's funny if you don't answer emails for a few hours, sometimes problems solve themselves. And so you don't have to always be there for every single thing or every single one. And and, and it's okay to not be perfect. <laughs> and that's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. That's awesome. I think that's right. That's, I think it's great. So Chad, what's next for you and for IBC? What should we be looking for over the rest of the year and into 2024? Yeah, so I think I think we're going to continue. My my role at IBC currently is very specific to running the energy division, like we talked about. Yeah. So we want to continue to create products that help our customers on the frac side increase hydrocarbon production, whether that be our, you know, best in class micro emulsion flow weight, or whether it's our prop and embedment mitigation product that is sort of our two flagship technologies. And then all kinds of cool stuff in my role, I get to work with the, the team in the lab that's awesome and present ideas and come up with potential new products. And there's some stuff in the lab that's that's going to be pretty special. And I think we're going to continue to turn heads and, and change the way people look at uh, chemistry design to interact with geology in ways that, that no one else does right now. So that's my focus. I'm going to continue to look at launching uh, products into spaces that maybe we're not currently in in energy, and and we're looking into that, and and some stuff will be launched in Q4 that, that we can talk about when it's launched. But that's that's my cool. focus is just to grow our energy business, and we've got some really cool products to do it. So yeah, awesome. and keep innovating. It sounds like every day. Every day. Awesome. <laughs> every day. Cool. Well, Chad, thank you for joining us today on the Chemical Show. It's been really good to have this conversation and to share a little bit more about you and what you're doing at IBC. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. Have a great day. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for joining us. Keep listening, keep following, keep sharing, and we'll talk to you again soon. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.